Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Annika Norquist. Given all the news from the Supreme Court this summer, which has already happened and which is still to come, we're doing a short series which I've been, sort of jokingly, calling our Summer of Law. Some get a summer of love. For us at the Madison program, no such luck. Despite the holiday, given that this week has been so packed with action, we decided we better start this series right away, and we're kicking it off with a really great interview with John Yu. While I could spend a pretty considerable amount of time listing his accomplishments, suffice it to say that he is the Heller Professor of Law at the University of California at Berkeley, as well as a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. He has written eight books, over 100 academic articles, and numerous contributions to papers like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, etc. Today we're here to talk about his latest book, which is called A Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court. While we did actually record this slightly before the decision on affirmative action, we do discuss it in this conversation, as well as a lot of other things about the Supreme Court, which I hope are going to be helpful to you as you try to figure out what's been happening with the Supreme Court and what all this means about their future. Of course, we have not forgotten that tomorrow is our nation's birthday, as well, incidentally, as the birthday of the James Madison program and actually my own birthday as well. So, in honor of the holiday, we decided to do the best of both worlds for bringing you this conversation relevant to the news this week, but also a recitation from Alan Galzo of Patrick Henry's Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death speech, which we'll have very quickly just right at the end of this conversation. So stay tuned all the way until the end. I hope everyone has a wonderful 4th of July. And with no further ado, let's jump in. John, welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure to have you. Thanks, Annika. It's great to be with you. So uh, to kick us off here, you know, you've written this book that's really kind of intended to break down and make the Supreme Court understandable uh, for people broadly. But I mean, of the three branches of government, it's the only one that's not elected. So can you unpack for me a little bit? I mean, what the utility is, why it is that it's so important for regular people to understand the court and how it works? So you're completely right, Annika. It is the unelected branch. Uh, and one thing I think listeners should understand is that uh, our Constitution is undemocratic. You know, we have a lot of features of the Constitution which don't rely on right, direct elections. And so the Supreme Court is just one feature of many that try to reduce, you know, calm down, modify democracy because we're not a democracy. We're a republic. And so I would just say, yes, the Supreme Court's unelected, but anybody look at the Senate lately? The Senate is built on the idea of uh, that one of the most important institutions of our government may be elected by the states, but is really has very little to do with proportional representation of the population. Um, So you look at features like that. But the Supreme Court, of course, is the most, I guess, unrepresentative. I think there's a reason for that. And that's because... Uh, when the founders designed the Constitution, they were actually responding to a period of relatively unlimited direct democracy in the wake of the American Revolution. And this had introduced or caused a great deal of problems for our young nation. Uh, for, there was oppression of rights. There was the majority just taking things away from the minority because they had more votes. There was instability of law, weak government, uh, you know, potential competitors like France, Spain, and even Great Britain thinking of coming back because of the weakness of our government institutions, because of the sort of the changeability. This is what they would write about in the founding period, the changeability of these very direct democracy forms of government. So the Supreme Court in part was designed to introduce stability to our system by being a fair interpreter of the laws and interpreters of laws who themselves could not be controlled by democracy, you know, sort of the more democratic elements of the constitution. Yeah. I mean, to kind of push a little bit on that, I mean, then, so what, what is the goal, I guess, is what I'm trying to ask of your book. Mm -hmm. What is it that you're hoping that people can come away and understand better that they're not getting from other resources on the Supreme court? 
Yes. So the, the real fundamental quandary of then the Supreme Court in this system that you describe where, you know, we do have elected elements of the government. We do rely on democratic choice, but we have a constitution that limits that democracy. Then how do you justify what the Supreme Court is doing? Because usually when the Supreme Court acts, it is actually stopping the majority from doing something it badly wants to do. If yeah. it was just approving it, we don't really need the Supreme Court. You could just get rid of the judiciary, but there are times when it actually stands against the majority. So the question is, how do you reconcile that with a democratic form of government? Mm. And so the book's argument is the only way you can really do that is by the court committing to maintaining the original understanding of the constitution. Because if the court uses some other approach that depends on its, you know, the, the views of five unelected justices about the meanings of vague words like due process or equal protection or other kinds of unenumerated rights, you know, rights that aren't in the text, then we think it really is becoming this kind of unrepresentative institution with a large amount of power. And that does cause these difficulties in democratic theory. But if it's just a court that's primary job is to resolve cases or controversies about the meaning of federal law, and all it's doing is saying, you guys, you the people, promised between yourselves to have this essentially this contract about delegating power to the government. And all the court is doing is making sure that original deal is kept. Then it's not really doing anything that causes a severe democratic problem. All it's really doing is saying, we are just living, you know, forcing you to live up to the terms you agreed on back in 1787 or in 1868. That I think is the way we argue to resolve this democratic difficulty for the court. As you point out at many points in your book, there have definitely been periods where the court has been more true to that mandate than other times, times when they actually have been pretty responsive uh, or at least kind of made decisions either reacting to or against public opinion. Um, and it, it brings to mind, I mean, you actually brought up the example of Casey in your conclusion, which is a really interesting one. But it also brings to mind you know, a lot of people accuse certain justices not to name drop, but particularly Justice Roberts, of attempting to preserve the integrity of the court, so to speak, or preserve its you know, popular appeal by not steering too close you know, to the wind when it mm. comes to the, the court of public opinion. Um, what's kind of your thought on that judicial philosophy? How much of an issue do you think it is right now? Uh, that's a great question. And I think one thing we try to do is use history to point out where the courts or where the justices have tried to do that in the past mm. and look at the results. So I think the most famous example, unfortunately, so I think we should, maybe we should use the word, the most notorious example is Dred Scott. Yeah. Here's a case where uh, Congress uh, is reaching an agreement uh, on how to regulate the spread of slavery in the territories. Right? This doesn't touch slavery in the Southern states, nor does it touch the freedom that's in the northern states. And Chief Justice Taney, who you know follows Chief Justice Marshall, thinks that he can use the court to bring an end to the political fighting, mm. to find a political, essentially a political solution to the slavery problem. And uh, obviously there was no such solution available, but you know, he was acting like a political actor and he then, I think, reached a decision which was terribly wrong, you know, flew in the face of the original understanding and the history of, uh, you know, how uh, the, the federal government was understood to treat, to regulate slavery. And I think actually helped precipitate the Civil War. So I think this is the worst example, the most notorious example of a chief justice, sorry, with like political antenna up, trying to figure out how to navigate the politics. And, and I, the other example we talk about is um, the New Deal, the New Deal court. So here you have a court that I think properly invalidated some of the first New Deal. You know, you look, go back and look at these first New Deal laws, they basically said like, the government shall control all agriculture, shall set all the prices, quotas, mm -hmm. amount of things grown throughout the whole country, no matter the size of the farm. Um, 
And the court, I think, said that goes well beyond federal power. And you can't create a government agency and you just say, you control all agriculture. Now, in that case, the Supreme Court stood up and struck down the first New Deal and provoked President Roosevelt into trying to pack the court. Right. Uh, I think in this case, this was a court, in my mind, that initially was not paying attention, was rather to politics, not trying to navigate, but instead was trying to reach the right answers. Then under you know President Roosevelt's court packing threat, it's thought that the you know one or two of the justices changed their minds and tried to right again, like mm-hmm. you're asking about, like Chief Justice Roberts now or Chief Justice Taney then try to navigate the political shoals and come up with a compromise. I think the unfortunate result is they gave birth to this federal leviathan we have now mm-hmm. with us that's sort of micro regulating all kinds of parts of our of our lives and has sort of really depressed um, the ability of local communities and states to govern themselves in the ways that the founders thought would happen. Yeah, that's a, I mean, a really interesting jumping off point to talk. I mean, I'm going to put a pin in Dred Scott. I want to return to that in a second. We should put, talk- <laughs> we should put many, many pins yes. into Dred Scott, <laughs> like a voodoo doll and kill it off. That, fair enough. <laughs> but talking a little bit about the administrative state and about the New Deal here, I mean, it's such an interesting example. I mean, one, just at the outset, that uh, the economic issue there was so acrimonious, um, which is so diff- like it's hard to imagine today just because there's so many other social issues that are so much mm. kind of at the center um, of public discourse. I mean, I kind of wonder because it is one of those, you know, history repeats things where mm-hmm. suddenly people are angry at the court. There's a lot of worry about the potential for court packing right now. I mean, how much a, how much of a risk do you think there is of that happening? And B, I mean, what issue, if if you are willing to, I guess, make a prediction about it, but what issue or at least what kinds of issues do you think might precipitate it? Like, how would it actually work out politically if mm-hmm. it is a real risk? Well, first, we should understand that this is not the first time this has happened. Yeah. And I'm constantly struck at how all these efforts by what I think of as the extreme progressive left to attack the independence of the courts, where what the segregationists tried on the Supreme Court after Brown versus Board of Education. Mm. I, I think they would be horrified if they understood what they were doing was exactly all these ideas, changing the number of people on the court, monkeying around with the cases the court can hear. All these things. Now, of course, in the current era, these attacks on the ethics of the justices, their financial disclosure forms. This is an attack on judicial independence by people who don't like the way the court's going. You didn't hear any of these ethics complaints about the justices when the Supreme Court was deciding Casey and uh, and upholding Roe versus Wade. But the tools, uh, these suggestions are things that have regularly reappeared before. So they reappeared in the response to Brown versus Board of Education by the segregationists. They were um, also proposed by people like Teddy Roosevelt and the progressives in the late 19th and early 20th century, he do, who wanted to introduce European-style government here and didn't like the what they called the obsolete constitutions, right? anachronistic mm. theories of balance of powers and federalism. And some of them were even thought up back in the time when Thomas Jefferson took over in 1800 and saw the judiciary as a kind of redoubt of the Federalist Party. So we have, as you said, you know, history repeats, we have had these cycles before mm. where these ideas have come up. I think the judgment of history is that when you look back at these previous efforts, that they have been unfortunate, yeah. that it was a mistake to attack the independence of the judiciary. That doesn't mean this judiciary has supremacy in interpreting the Constitution. I think that it has an equal role with the President and Congress in interpreting the Constitution. But I don't think that the other branches can subordinate the Supreme Court to them, uh, to their views. Now, your other question, your uh, predictive question, you know, what would need to happen uh, today for these efforts to, right, to make progress? So, uh, I think you have you know accumulation of decisions that the progressive left doesn't like. So you have Dobbs last year overturning Roe versus Wade. If you have this year, as I expect, the Supreme Court strike striking down the use of race 
in college admissions. I think that would drive the the, the idea that uh, you can't use race in this kind of diversity agenda that the progressive left loves so much would drive the progressive left uh, crazy. Maybe saying you can't have a wealth tax, right? If Congress were to pass a wealth, those are actually things that did happen before that prompted mm-hmm. efforts to reduce judicial review. But uh, let me end with it's it's. I don't know if you even need a real spark on the fire because it seems to me that the whole agenda of progressivism can't stand things like the Supreme Court yeah. and judicial review because uh, you know if you're progressive, you think you know how to achieve a kind of utopia on earth, whether it's global warming or racial diversity, then all these things in the constitution that are designed to you know, moderate democracy, to slow democracy down are just obstacles in your way to achieving utopia. Why would you ever let any of those things like silly Supreme Court justices stand in your way to stopping global warming? This is something that the progressives, the, the original progressives of the early 20th century also believe that's why you have people like Teddy Roosevelt. You know, I, I love Teddy Roosevelt, but you know, he was one who he had the ideas of changing the numbers on the court, mm. and he even thought that it would be okay to let Congress overrule the Supreme Court in certain kinds of cases and so on. So I think this is always going to be something progressives are interested in because they have uh, certain values that they would like to use the government to impose, and so anything that diffuses government power that fragments the government is an obstacle for them to overcome. Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about the affirmative action one. I mean, at this mm-hmm. juncture, could be any day now. So <laughs> I don't want to get too much into the weeds before we have more information. My concern about it is, I mean, it's kind of like the Andrew Jackson, like the Supreme Court has made its decision, now let them enforce it. It's really hard for me to envision um, universities following the rule on affirmative action should the Supreme Court strike it down. Um, and I mean, even like, I mean, as you I'm sure know, law schools have been pulling out of U.S. news and people are speculating that that's in large part because of, you know, affirmative action. Um, how do you think it, it's going to play out should the Supreme Court strike it down? So first, let me just underscore, the Supreme Court doesn't get the last final say on the meaning of the Constitution. They get a say, and people observe they often get the last say, but we shouldn't understate that the President and Congress have a right to interpret the Constitution doing their own functions, like passing laws. You would think Congress people shouldn't vote for unconstitutional laws, and presidents should enforce the law in a way that's constitutional. Um, but here you have what you're describing, I think, I, again, the parallels to the era after Brown mm. are remarkable. You have the res- you have what you're describing. I think I agree with you. I think it's going to happen. The resistance of state officials, school officials to a decision of the federal Supreme Court. And you're going to see a kind of what it was called back then, massive resistance to the decisions of the Supreme Court. And let me say the South was very successful at this. Even though Brown versus Board of Education is decided in the early 50s, uh, the statistics seems to suggest significant desegregation doesn't occur until the mid to late 1960s. So it took over 10 years. And it took the president and Congress getting involved to really achieve the promise of Brown. Unfortunately, I think we're going to see the same thing here. I think you're going to see university and college administrators and particularly K through 12 administrators administrators and teachers who are so beholden to this racial diversity idea that they're willing to defy or think of ways to defeat the decision of the Supreme Court. Uh, again, because if you're progressive and you have this vision of what you know what the best thing is in life, why would you let the Supreme Court? stop you. So you're going to have to see, I think, a lot of, I I think it was trench warfare involving the lower courts are going to have to really investigate why you have things which are occurring right now already, like magnet schools dropping the use of standardized testing in high schools, or when you see colleges, as you say, dropping the use of the SAT. What they're going to try to do is create uh, discretion to pick students, which are hard to review by courts because they will leave no records and have no criteria, even though everyone with you know a head on their shoulders knows what they're up to. 
Yeah. I mean, I wonder what you think about the um, empirical example of California, which banned affirmative action, but I mean, seems to all intents and purposes to still be using it in the UCs. Yeah, this is my employer. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> okay, I think, can... you know, the, no, 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 I'm happy to talk about it. I just, I, I hate to see my employer engaging in this. Yeah, yeah. But, right. You have, uh, you know, the people of California, Prop 209, and then just a few years ago, we, you know, reaffirmed Prop 209, and they don't want, you know, people of California yeah. do not want race used yeah. in college admissions. In fact, the interesting thing is Prop 209 passed in the mid 90s. Uh, and then there was another proposition last year to try to uh, overturn it. And the second proposition actually race, the um, colorblind principle was supported by more people now than it was back then. So wow. in 30 years, supporting California for the end of use of race has gotten only larger. But again, they have to fight with these administrators who are trying to find all kinds of ways to achieve their racial diversity goals. And so they haven't been able to restore uh, the student population to the way it was in the early 90s, where there were just, I think, clearly quotas being used. Right. So the racial balance of the class has changed. Personally, I wish we didn't even have to look at what the racial balance is, but we do. Yeah. <laughs> and it's changed. But it, so it hasn't returned. But it still, it, it doesn't seem like the university is choosing based on merit either. And in fact, I think the use of the SAT is not going to be required anymore. So the uh, unfortunate thing is the, the University of California, uh, it was held up. Actually, if you look at the oral arguments about the affirmative action cases in, last year, uh, the University of California was held up as a, see, here's an example of a state that university that doesn't use race, but still has a diverse class. In fact, I think UC just enrolled the most diverse class, racially diverse class in its history last year. I, I just couldn't believe it. the University of California then filed a brief saying, no, no, we didn't achieve anything. We're not willing to say that we are satisfied with these results. The racial diversity quest can never end and in fact can't be measured. That was the most incredible thing. They just said, wow. there is no way we were going to measure to say any goals exist or have been achieved. They would not say racial diversity was ever achieved. If you have that view in mind, then you're all, you, you will always use race. There was, there's never any, you know, perfect state to reach where racial quotas and preferences can no longer be used. Uh, that, that just shows how dangerous this ideology is. So I said that we were going to put a pin in Dred Scott. We put as many pins as you desired. And <laughs> we're going to return. So I I should disclose I'm interviewing pretty much very shortly after Hadley Arcus, uh, and oh, it's kind wonderful. of kind of interesting because I know that you're in his judicial philosophies. You disagree on many things, but in terms of like drawing the parallels between the abortion debate and you know, Dred Scott and that whole kind of era of decisions, that was one area where you actually kind of had a fair amount in common. And so I, I'm wondering for your opinion, because Professor Arcus is very upset um, that the court did not, in the end, go full-throated affirming the right to life for a baby. They could have and they didn't. I kind of wonder, I mean, yeah, what your thoughts on that, to be nice in contrast. I can explain. Yeah, let me explain the difference, because I'm a great admirer of Hadley's work. Uh, probably, I think I've read all his books, some of them more than <laughs> once. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've heard Hadley speak. And so I love, he, he's going to hate this, but I love, you know, Hadley is a very distinctive way of speaking. <laughs> and I love in my mind, just imagining him reading his books out loud. It makes the book so much more entertaining. Yes. Um, so I, I, and I've, I've debated Hadley and been on panels with Hadley. So I hear, let me explain the difference. And so, uh, and I think our book is maybe more of a traditional conservative approach to the Supreme Court, which was stick to the original understanding of the Constitution. Try to keep out of the justices' decisions any of their own views of morality or political philosophy. As much of that as possible is up to right elections, is up to the representatives we send to our state houses or to Washington, D.C., um, I think that's different than Hadley's view in this sense. I think Hadley thinks 
And he's not alone in this view. And in fact, you could say many lawyers and justices in our history probably agreed at some point with this view, which is uh, that a theory of natural rights has to be incorporated into the constitutional text, that it's actually the background morality against which the constitution should be understood. So if there are places where uh, the constitution is ambiguous, uh, you should use nat- this philosophy of natural rights to fill in the gaps. And so it does come up with Dobbs, uh, as you say. And Dobbs, our argument, and you know, we have a whole, we have actually two chapters because we also talk about the leak of the Dobbs opinion and the, that attack on the judicial independence, but also the substance of the opinion. You know, in our view is, look, the Constitution doesn't take a position on abortion at all, and so it doesn't take a position on when life starts at all. And that's why it's up to the states. And we say, look, there's a lot of things like that. We, the death penalty is up to the states. Euthanasia is up to the states. You know, these fundamental life and death decisions are up to the states. I think Hadley and other uh, believers, uh, and this is not just conservative view, there are liberals who have a view they would just do it differently. People who believe that actually the Constitution has greater moral content think, well, why didn't the justices say life starts at uh, conception? Uh, That's what the natural law thinks now. And therefore, the court could have also just banned all abortion laws throughout the country in Dobbs, not just say it's up to the states to decide. I don't think that the founders would have understood our Constitution to have that much moral content that it would say the Supreme Court can actually interpret the phrase life, liberty, or property in the due process clause to mean that uh, the Supreme Court can actually set universal, uniform rules on when life begins or when life can Mm. end. Yeah, I mean, both of you guys, I was sort of surprised kind of knowing this difference of opinion, but both of you point to the example of of Stephen Douglas and, and, you know, the view of, of that slave states and free states could just sort of go on living separate lives under separate kinds of laws on that issue uh, as an example. That's a great example. This is how another example of the difference. I'm glad you mentioned it is I don't think that I, I agree. Slavery is one of the most abhorrent violations of natural right. Um, it, it couldn't be more obvious. I think even the found, I mean, the founders knew this, but the constitution also accommodates slavery Unfortunately, I think I mean, I think it's obvious that the founders put uh, the union above right, eradicating slavery. They hoped slavery would die out on its own. They didn't want the federal. They don't mention the word slavery, mm. but they make accommodations like the three fifths clause and the fugitive slave clause. And they mention slavery and the slavery importation clause and so on. I think uh, the view of people who believe in natural law, natural rights would have thought before the 13th Amendment that the Supreme Court could have struck down slavery throughout the country. Mm. I think that would have been just as problematic as what Chief Justice Donnie, Tawney did in Dred Scott. You know, I, I, could, I mean, the natural law people say, oh, the Supreme Court could have said, not only is Congress allowed to ban slavery in the territories, as the Missouri Compromise did, but that the Supreme Court could also strike down slavery in the southern states. This is not even a view Lincoln had, right? Lincoln always said, you know, that's why he won the 13th Amendment, because he knew when the Civil War was over, slavery legally could resume in the Southern states under the Constitution. So that's another great example, along with Dobbs, the slavery question is a good example of where we differ. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, Yeah, so then I guess then the argument would be now that the courts have kind of said their piece, if the pro-life movement wants to move forward on it, a constitutional amendment should be the goal, not nothing further from the courts. Yeah, exactly. I think now this also goes to the point about the Supreme Court has not got a monopoly on the meaning of the Constitution. Uh, And this was also true of the antebellum period leading up to the Civil War. People can make all kinds of arguments about the Constitution, and they can seek to draw meaning from it and try to persuade you know, their fellow citizens about it. And so people, nothing prevents uh, the pro-life movement from saying, oh, we think life in the Constitution means life starts at conception. And so we ask you to vote for representatives to the state house who will right, set abortion rights uh, at some level or even to uh, ban it altogether. Um, that 
doesn't they, they're not bound by what the Supreme Court says. Right? In fact, I think what the Supreme Court expects is that people and, and this is not just on abortions on all issues will now go to the elect people will work through the political process, make their arguments, make constitutional arguments, try to persuade them through the political process by electing people to pass the laws that they want. But they're not going to have the Supreme Court to impose it. This, this is a funny thing I thought about the response to Dobbs is you had critics from Dobbs of Dobbs saying uh, the Supreme Court, you know, must impose a uniform rule about abortion on the country. And they were basically saying, please, please, we don't want to do our job of, of representing the people and engaging in the political process. We want someone else to decide this and take the issue away from us. Like, what's the point of having members of the House and Senate and the State House if they're not willing to do the job of the legislature? <laughs> and I kind of wonder, I mean, Arcus is kind of sort of on this train, but I mean, I think someone like Adrian Vermeule is even more so on it, saying that people in the courts very much should seize power, conservatives, right, very mm-hmm. much should exercise um, as much of their own kind of personal view as they can, because the left has done it and the left has won on a lot of issues. I mean, I think a lot of it, particularly the more recent stuff um, from you and that kind of crowd, it does stem from a real fear um, about whether or not we actually have any tools available to us, if we use the courts in the way that you're describing with a very kind of taking yourself out of the situation approach and that it'll be a one-sided war if the right does this and the left doesn't. I mean, what would be your response to that kind of philosophy? So I, you know, so first, uh, Adrian's an old friend of mine and I've known him for well over 30 years. And I think he's done a service by writing this provocative book and article about common good constitutionalism. And its basic point is correct, which is uh, it might be a myth to think that we could have a completely value-free constitution. So you know, the, the first of his arguments is like everything we do has some kind of moral content to it. And so the constitution and how we interpret it has some moral content to it. You can't say it's completely value-free. And so then his next step is, well, if you're going to put moral content to it, then what more, you know, what system of morality are you going to use? Uh, and so the one that uh, progressives have used and the one that has been dominant on the court has been a kind of personal autonomy, sort of liberation of the individual approach. And that has failed. And so in this respect, I think uh, Adrian's work is very similar to Patrick Deneen's book about why liberalism has failed. I'm not actually quite convinced about the consequential argument that liberalism has failed. I think our country and Western civilization has actually done pretty damn well compared to the alternatives in the last few centuries. So, it's, you know, I, it's not obvious to me that the uh, actual claim is correct factually, that liberalism, liberalism, small l, has failed. Uh, actually, like, again, I think it's done extreme, extraordinarily well. And many, many people in the world wish they could move here and take advantage of it. <laughs> I mean, if you want to look for market judgment on liberalism. Um, but then the, what I'm not sure about, I'm still thinking about it. Uh, I'm not sure my view, but I'm not sure, even if I agree with the diagnosis, I do agree with parts of the diagnosis of the problem that uh, the kind of big L liberalism of the Democratic Party or progressives is failing. The symptoms and the diagnosis might be correct. I'm not sure about the cure they recommend. So if the cure they recommend is we should do basically what they did (laughs) when they had a majority on the Supreme Court, we should just use the court to drive moral results just in a different direction. Uh, I'm not sure that's the right answer. Uh, I think the traditional conservative answer, which we defend in this book, is return these moral, these most important moral decisions to the people to answer through the political process, through elections and negotiation and compromise, and uh, don't ask the judges to do it. Because here's the problem is if, uh, if you take the common good constitutional answer as, well, the courts should you know, drive certain moral results, what stops, right? Uh, President Joe Biden in his second term from appointing more justices and gets to five justices on the Supreme Court. And they just turn around and go, okay, you said it was fine. We're just going to do our moral results now. So at least if you have a lot of these decisions sent to the people 
and you have a Supreme Court that's just enforcing the original terms of the deal of the Constitution, then I think you go back to your original question. I think that reinforces the legitimacy of the policies that our government arrives at because they are still rooted in popular election, popular choice for most decisions. Yeah. I mean, I think the concern is that it seems like in a lot of cases, the left is already doing that. Um, So is the concern then that, you know, they could redouble their efforts in that regard? Well, I think the the problem maybe with common good constitutionalism is uh, like its progressive, you know, reverse image counterpart, it places a lot of importance on the use of power by experts or a small number of people. Uh, divorced from, you know, sort of any rooting in sort of popular, right, popular preferences or the results of the political process. So uh, take a different, put, put it outside the Supreme Court, take the uh, this vast administrative state. I think many people saw during the COVID lockdowns how powerful this state was. I mean, this administrative state basically shut down most economic activity in the country for almost two years and limited freedoms in, I think, ways that were unimaginable. Uh, before COVID and decided by a relatively small number of people who I think lacked common sense and judgment and uh, really tried some unproven theory, right, locking down people into their houses and didn't consider the costs. So uh, would you say you should use that vast administrative state to do conservative things too, if you get power? Um, but isn't it really that the administrative state, whether it's conservative or liberal, is based on an unlimited theory of government power and one that's divorced, in fact, insulated from the wishes of the people. I think that's actually much more anti-democratic than what uh, these uh, critics say they're against, which is a you know, Supreme Court or uh, you know, I, I actually sometimes I think they what they really don't like are popular elections and popular wishes because they're in favor of a more enlightened truth that arrives to only a small elite, whether that's a liberal elite or a conservative elite. Yeah, that is a, a fair cop, I would say. <laughs> you spent a lot of time in your book on the administrative state, um, which was really interesting because I think a lot of people are upset about various elements of it, but don't necessarily make the logical leap to this is the Supreme Court's fault or, the, or even the Supreme Court could do something about it. The Supreme Court has something really serious to say about it. Can you kind of, for our listeners, talk through that connection and what it is that the Supreme Court has done and should be doing about the administrative state? Yes. So I think our constitution created a relatively decentralized government of fairly weak powers in most areas. And then, you know, some important powers in specialized areas like foreign affairs, national security, interstate commerce, taxing and spending at the federal level. Those are its most important powers. So, you know, there's a case at the Supreme Court coming up next year. How is it then that the federal government has the authority and to put, you know, regulators on every fishing boat that leaves it goes out into waters the United States and at the expense of the of the fishermen count up the number of fish you're catching and fine you if, if if the government feels that you're catching too many of certain kinds none of which is in any statute ever passed by Congress that's just one example so people are seeing I think more and more how ridiculous this all is how much micromanagement is going on when the original system was, to rely on state and local government closest to the people for most decisions where, you know, basically elections produce representatives who made the major policy decisions. I think if you took the founders and brought them to today and said, look at the government today, the thing that would astonish them the most is this gigantic administrative state, you know, agencies and every subject of human life wielding power uh, in a way that's mostly independent from control of any politically elected representatives. So what did the Supreme Court do? The Supreme Court allowed it to happen. In effect, this was part of the confrontation with FDR during the New Deal. Uh, For most of our history, I think our our country did stay true to the Constitution. But then in the wake of the Great Depression, FDR came in uh, with the New Deal and sort of took Woodrow Wilson's ideas of a more European, really a more of a Prussian bureaucracy, and used the Great Depression almost as an opportunity 
to overlay this new kind of governance on the country. And the Supreme Court, right, ultimately under the threat of court packing, blessed the idea that regulators would have unlimited power to the point where there's a case this term where regulators have basically said to a couple that bought a piece of land in Idaho, you can't build anything on it because you're not on the water. You're too close to the water. Uh, you know, they, so they essentially assert the power to basically control all use of land in the country. And then uh, the other big problem is that these bureaucrats were made independent of political control, that they are supposed to, it's almost it's so difficult to reverse any of their decisions, uh, to subject it to uh, political scrutiny. That's the other thing the Supreme Court allowed. So the Supreme Court is starting to chip away at both this current Supreme Court, the Roberts Court is starting, and this is, continues the work of the Rehnquist Court, is trying to chip away at this idea of unlimited power and independent experts. But it's going to take a long time to get the Constitution back, if ever, to the original vision. Yeah, I mean, we've talked a lot about originalism over the course of this interview. And as you note in your book, I mean, even really far left um, members of the court uh, are, you know, are kind of all claiming, at least in some sense, to be originalists now. Um, and you note that, uh, you know, cases like Roe were not made on originalist grounds um, and now has been struck down on fairly originalist grounds. And so I'm wondering, I mean, kind of going forward on this, uh, do you have any thoughts on whether that's a broader trend that some of these, you know, favorites of of the left are going to either be struck down and maybe eventually, if they are replaced, if Roe is replaced down the line, if it would able be would, would it be possible for it to be replaced on more originalist grounds? Is that like a possible scenario that we should be aware of going forward? I think it's a welcome change that. Uh... Even Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson, the most recent nominee who was put up by President Biden, uh, professed some allegiance to originalism in her hearings, and that uh, if uh, there's going to be argument over the correct interpretation of the Constitution, it's over how do you read that history from 1787 or 1868 correctly. So that's good because at least you're not in the world of Roe where it's, oh, justice is musing about what liberty means <laughs> based on their own views, uh, You know where you have uh, Justice Kennedy and Casey saying something like, oh, liberty means, you know, person sort of expressing their own view of the of the universe or something. You know, the, the, I think this is Justice Scalia, I think famously called the, criticized this as the sweet mysteries of life passage. <laughs> so I think at least if you're narrowing the grounds to sort of a historical one, you know, of course, people are still going to disagree, just like we disagree all the time about uh, how to interpret historical events. But at least that gets the court out of the job of just considering their own personal, the justice's own personal preferences or morality. So that's that's a major achievement. But, you know, your question, you know, raises us. You're, you're so young. You're so young and yet so cynical. <laughs> your, your question is, suppose, suppose uh, liberal justices don't really believe it, right? Basically, you're saying, what right. if they're just in dissent? So they're kind of making the arguments they know appeal to the conservative majority. They don't really believe this. And so if they were ever to get five votes again, uh, you'll see originalism go out the window. That's always possible. I think justices in general don't like to contradict themselves or you know do one thing one day and then turn right around and do something completely mm. different the next day i expect in fact one of the things that hamilton says about the supreme court why he called it the least dangerous branch was that there is a certain legal desire for consistency for stability yeah. and you don't see wild changes the way you do with the elected branches and so i would hope the liberal justices are going to stick on this, you know, common approach to interpretation for a while. Now, your second point: Are you going to see a lot of other major liberal decisions replaced by, reformulated, or overturned by originalist decisions? Yes, I think that's happening right now. I think Dobbs is just the beginning, mm. um, and that's because you have, you know, President Trump appointed three justices who all basically said they were originalists, and 
uh, you know, they may disappoint us from time to time, disappoint originalists, I mean, from time to time. But um, I think they are like Roe, uh, Bruin last term about uh, the right to bear arms. They're both, both incredible originalist decisions that are overturned or replaced the sort of dominant liberal way of thinking about things. And I think you're going to see, uh, I think you're going to see much more of that in the years to come. Absolutely. Well, John, this has been a phenomenal discussion. Thank you so much for your time. Okay. Thank you very much. I'm glad it was phenomenal and not just nominal. <laughs> Absolutely. Because <laughs> as someone who studied Latin and Greek, I couldn't resist. Yes. I, know, well, I, guess, I guess we have a couple minutes. I hadn't prepared in this way because I hadn't known that you were also a classicist. Amateur. Amateur classicist. <laughs> I never got the professional degree. <laughs> I think we're all lifelong amateur classicists. That's kind of how it goes. But I am kind of wondering, because it seems to me that the, the push to change the rules of play as they exist reminds me so much of the accounts of the late Republic. Of, uh, well, uh, there were only only two, and now we're have, we have a triumvirate. Mm. We're going to just you know, totally changed the rules of play and it directly precipitated the fall. I'm sorry to end on another really cynical question. No, yes, it's, yeah, again, I repeat my, I repeat my point that you're too young to be so cynical. <laughs> but you could see, what well, well, you could say, you know, the Roman Republic, you know, their constitution was not like ours, but, you know, it expressed certain traditional rules of how the Romans govern themselves. And uh, you could, you know, some history suggest what happened was that Rome became, the empire became too rich and powerful to be governed by that kind of constitution. And so you had people like Caesar who could go to Gaul and accumulate so much wealth and power that he could just get away with overriding the constitution. Um, I'm not sure that's our problem. You know, I don't think it's a problem. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I don't think it's a problem of the wealth (laughs) and power of, you know, some people, you know, the left would say the American empire to uh, sort of subvert the principles of the constitution is different. It's a different thing. It's almost as if it's intellectuals and elites who want to use the power of the courts to impose a sort of moral vision uh, that's different. So I actually, I was going to suggest a different classical comparison, which is uh, when you think about okay. chaos, disorder, the changeability of laws and so on, I think of Thucydides' Peloponnesian War when he mm. describes the kind of what happens uh in Athens during the plague or during uh, city-states, I think Corsaira is the one that he describes, undergo civil war and, you know, where you have order breaking down because you have a failure to agree on the common uh, norms and traditions that should govern a community. I, I don't think we're at that part yet. In fact, to me, one thing I think is a sign of losing in a way uh, on the part of progressives is that they are proposing to undertake these radical constitutional changes, like not just the Supreme Court and packing it, but also making D.C. a state and getting rid of the filibuster, getting rid of the electoral college, on and on and on. I I think that our constitution is a little different because our constitution is actually what binds us together as a people rather than the other way around. And so I think when you when you're when your program is based on seriously changing the constitution, to me, that means you've got a losing argument in our system. Absolutely. Well, that is a really stirring note to actually end on. So thank you so much, John. Well, thank you. It's been a wonderful uh, time. I'll come back to talk more about Thucydides in the future. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, there you have it, Madisonians. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation, that you found it as interesting and helpful as I did, and that you're looking forward to the next two parts of our Summer of Law series. You can find Professor Yu's book in the show notes. As always, you can find out more about us at our website, jmp.princeton.edu, that also has all of our upcoming events and recordings of our previous events. I'd also really encourage you to follow us on social media, on Twitter at Madison Program, as well as on Instagram and Facebook. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate any and all ratings and reviews please follow send to your friends leave us a review we really appreciate it it means a lot happy independence day have a wonderful holiday with your friends and family and to close us out in honor of the holiday may i present our thomas w smith distinguished research scholar alan gelzer patrick henry 
Give Me Liberty, March 23, 1775. The question before the House is one of awful moment to this country. For my own part, I have but one lamp by which my feet are guided, and that is the lamp of experience. I know of no way of judging of the future but by the past. And judging by the past, I wish to know what there has been in the conduct of the British ministry for the last ten years to justify those hopes with which gentlemen have been pleased to solace themselves. We have done everything that could be done to avert the storm which is now coming on. We have petitioned. We have remonstrated. We have supplicated. We have prostrated ourselves before the throne and have implored its interposition to arrest the tyrannical hands of the ministry and parliament. And we have been spurned with contempt. There is no longer any room for hope. If we wish to be free... If we mean to preserve inviolate these inestimable privileges for which we have been so long contending, we must fight. I repeat it, sir, we must fight. An appeal to arms and to the God of hosts is all that is left us. They tell us, sir, that we are weak, unable to cope with so formidable an adversary. But when shall we be stronger? Will it be the next week or the next year? Will it be when we are totally disarmed, and when a British guard shall be stationed in every house? Shall we gather strength by irresolution and inaction? Sir, we are not weak if we make a proper use of those means which the God of nature hath placed in our power. Three millions of people, armed in the holy cause of liberty, and in such a country as that which we possess, are invincible by any force which our enemy can send against us. Besides, sir... We shall not fight our battles alone. There is a just God who presides over the destinies of nations and who will raise up friends to fight our battles for us. The battle, sir, is not to the strong alone. It is to the vigilant, the active, the brave. Besides, if we were base enough to desire it, it is now too late to retire from the contest. There is no retreat but in submission and slavery. Our chains are forged. Their clanking may be heard on the plains of Boston. The war is inevitable. And let it come. I repeat it, sir. Let it come. It is in vain, sir, to extenuate the matter. Gentlemen may cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace. The war is actually begun. The next gale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand we here idle? What is it that gentlemen wish? What would they have? Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God! I know not what course others may take. But as for me, give me liberty or give me death.'